Our gospel reading today is from uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, and uh, we're going to start in verse 22. Normally, we read the first half of this chapter, uh, you know, Nicodemus and John 3.16 and all that good stuff, but here we're going to get into the second half, so I hope you'll be able to hear uh, the word of the Lord this morning. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, well, there are some, uh, some really interesting and wonderful kind of historical parallels between our Isaiah passage today, Isaiah 65, and, and this passage in John. Um, Isaiah and John are both kind of talking to a, uh, a people who should get it but don't, right? John's people have been in the promise. Let's we'll start with Isaiah. Isaiah's people have come back from exile in Babylon. At this point in the book of Isaiah, we've, the beginning, Isaiah's saying, you know, look out, keep doing what you're doing, you're going to end up in exile, and then there's this big silent gap in between chapters 39 and 40, and guess what? They go into exile, and then he comes along in chapter 40 and says, comfort, comfort, oh my people, you're now in exile, and then, <laughs> oh, after a period of time, they're able to return back to the land, and he again speaks this word of kind of comfort and challenge to them right? A word that says God is still with you and God is still doing something and there are promises that are still coming to bear fruit. And yet, those promises call you to stand up and be counted with God and his people, to actually live a kind of faithful life. The people that John is speaking to are people who have been in the promised land since Isaiah was speaking 500 years before. And guess what he's saying to them? The same thing John was saying, <laughs> or Isaiah was saying, which is kind of get your life together. Think about God as though he's real. What if you just, imagine this, live like God was real <laughs> and like he meant the stuff that he said to you. Right? So John's whole message in the early parts of the Gospels, and all of the Gospels mention him, all of the Gospels look to him and point him out, not only as the guy who had to be there to baptize Jesus, but the guy who was preparing the nation of Israel to receive Jesus, who was preparing them to receive someone greater than him. John's words to them are things like, don't cheat and steal, right? Don't take more 
than you are required to take for your job. To the Roman soldiers, right? Don't force people to pay you more just because you have a sword and they don't. To the Pharisees, maybe be nice to people. Like, still teach them, but you can teach and be nice. Like, you don't have to overburden people with these wild demands. Take into account the lives that they live. And yet, to the everyday people, he's pretty clear too. I know life is hard, but that doesn't get you off the hook from living a moral life. God's given you the ability to do it. I believe in you. I'm just a guy out in the desert with dreadlocks wearing an old camel skin. But I believe that you can do it, right? And that's what the baptizing was all about. The baptizing was about giving these people a sense that their lives had been washed and renewed so that they were ritually clean to step into the world and live as God's holy people. Both Isaiah and John are dealing with this disappointed group of people who are struggling with the oppression of the world around them, and yet they're still called to something big and beautiful, even though it's hard. It reminds me a little bit, I don't know what you were like when you were 18, 19, and 20 years old. I know what I was like. Um, well, I know what I was like when I was 16, which is my friend and I grabbed a globe in our history class, and we spun it, and we stuck our finger down, and we said, wherever our finger lands, that's where we're going to go. Um, which, you know, sounds random. It's really not. A, three-quarters of the world is water. So you, gotta, you have to prepare yourself for a couple spins here, okay, unless you're just excited to go out into the Pacific Ocean. Uh, B, you may not be able to control exactly where you land, but you can control the latitude, right, because the globe spins this way. So we made sure we went someplace warm, and we were going to go to Costa Rica, and I go and I tell my mom this wonderful plan. Hey, me and my friend who, a little dicey. Uh, but uh, we're going to, after we graduate, we're heading down to Costa Rica. Right? It's going to be great. What are you going to do? I don't know. We'll figure it out. Work on a farm or something. Where are you going to live? Again, we'll figure it out. Right? We had all kinds of good plans at, at 16 years old. And this is, I didn't go to Costa Rica, by the way. Uh, <laughs> bad life plan. But, but this is kind of where we are at 18, 19, 20 years old. Oftentimes we think, man, if I could just get free, I would be fine. If I just had independence, if they would just actually give me the keys to the car, I would be all good. I've got this thing figured out. And then we have to sign up for the draft and pay taxes and do all kinds of things where we realize, oh, this world is maybe a little more complicated than I thought. Maybe my parents aren't quite as crazy as I had convinced myself. We think we know what we're talking about, but then things become harder than we thought. And here's the challenge. A lot of times when we hit that moment, we go back to the old ways. We slip back into the old habits. We slip back into our old ways of living for Israel they slipped back into their old gods, worshiping their old idols, trusting in power and political prowess to keep them safe in a big, scary world. For a lot of us, we slip back into old habits, into old emotional ways of being, 
right? We go from walking on sunshine to all of a sudden I'm angry at everybody again. We slip back into those old addictions, into those old friendships. And it's because we think we have to in order to make it through. But I want to tell you, with Isaiah and with John, you don't. God is good. And when we are living in his promises, even when it's hard to live in his promises, we have a way through. Israel was still waiting on the promises. I don't know if you heard every facet of what Caden read in Isaiah. You might have just been so dazzled by his reading skills that you missed the actual details. So let me, let me point it out here. The one is that there was no weeping or crying, Isaiah says. He says, no infants will die, and the man who dies at a hundred will be considered a sinner who's accursed. There will be no vain labor, but every person will sit under their own vine and fig tree, and they will pick that fruit for themselves, and they'll feed their family with it. You're not going to build houses, he says, and have somebody else live in them. I was talking to somebody just this last week <laughs> who was uh, working in a church building, and they said, but we've, we've done all these things to the building, and we've improved it, we've made it good, and, we, and they're renting it from this, you know, this other place, and then this other church is going to come in and rent the building from us. They're, gonna, they're willing to pay more, so they're going to get the benefit of all of our labor. Right? It's like this vanity, this, just this futility. Like I put in all of this work and I did everything and then somebody else is going to reap the benefit. And, I, and Isaiah says, that's not going to happen. You're not going to build houses and have somebody else live in them. You're not going to plant vineyards and have somebody else reap the fruit. Your children will be blessed. And he even says, you will have God as your parent. God will be your father who walks with you, cares for you. And then this line at the end, which he's picking up on something he used way back in chapter 11. It's just the, the beautiful kind of structure of the prophet Isaiah. Let me read it so we, we actually get it here. But he says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, which, by the way, wolves don't typically graze, okay? In case you were wondering. Uh, but the wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. It shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Creation itself will give up the tendency toward violence. How? I don't know. Um, lions and wolves need to eat meat, and I have no clue how this actually works in the kingdom. <laughs> and I don't think that Isaiah is making a, a zoological point, necessarily. I think he's making a point about how we see the way that we have to make ourselves safe in this world. How for Israel, how for us, so often... The tendency is, the world is dangerous, so I need to become dangerous toward the world so that the world will leave me alone. And we get real spiky 
and we turn outward in such a way that says, if anybody wants to cause me harm, I will cause greater harm. And God simply says, that's not how it is in my kingdom. When I bring the new heavens and the new earth on my holy mountain, God will make us able to live in such a way that we just live in the light of his peace. Creation will be redeemed because the king will be in his right place. No more frustration or despair. No more back and forth between war and withdrawal. And if, you're, if any of this is resonating with you, so much of this is from Genesis 3. It's from the curse. When God actually says to Adam and to Eve, what does he tell Adam? You're going you're gonna to work in the field, and by the sweat of your brow, and what's going to happen? Thorns are going to grow in your garden. You're going to go plant, and you're going to go do your best, and you're going to feel like, yeah, I'm giving this land everything it needs, and instead weeds are going to come up. Futility, vanity. He tells Eve, out of the love of your husband and your family, you're going to try to bear children, and guess what? It's going to be incredibly dangerous and extremely painful. Labor is not going to be this blessed thing of, hooray, we're just here to welcome this child. No, it's actually going to become something that threatens you. And here comes Isaiah with the word of the Lord to say, God is bringing a world in which that curse is undone. In which that curse no longer has a place. But instead in this new heavens and this new earth, the world that God wanted all along, going to take up residence on his holy mountain. John, it might be hard to see, but John is saying exactly the same thing. <laughs> Jesus' life and ministry is beginning to overlap with John. There's kind of this weird thing here, but here is Jesus, it says in John chapter 3, and it says he and his disciples are baptizing. Right? In John 3, it says they're baptizing. Later on in chapter 4, verse 2, you'll see says, well, Jesus wasn't actually baptizing, but he sent out his disciples to baptize. All right, so what all that means, I don't, we got to, I don't know, maybe wrestle with that some other time. But here is Jesus, and he is doing the work that kind of overlaps with John's work. John, John was preparing all of these people to be able to receive the Lord, and now here's the Lord, and they're receiving him. So what does John have to say to that? Yes, my job's done here, right? Now it's time for me to sort of slowly but surely step off of the scene. And that is maybe the hardest thing to do. The student here has become the master. Everybody thought that because John is well known and he's making a big splash in the religious community of the first century, that maybe John is the one who's really going to do the thing they've all been hoping for. It turns out it's not John but it's Jesus. And the metaphor that John uses is, I am not the groom, I'm the best man. That's what he says. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. The bridegroom comes to find the bride. The groom and the bride, they go do their thing up at the front, and what is the friend's role? What's the best man's role? I've never been a best man. I've been a, I've been a groomsman, but I've never been a best man. So if anybody... Available. Um, 
Because there, there's a couple rules to be a best man. You've got to kind of be willing to show up and be there, right? But then you also have to know when to step out of the frame. You've got to know when it's not really about you. When that groom's about to faint, you're, you're planted and you're ready to hold him up. But it's not actually your thing. It's not your day. You're there to stand up at the reception and give the speech. Right, and to get everybody going and celebrating and, and involved in celebrating this couple, but it's not your day. Keep the focus on the couple. And so what does John say? He must increase and I must decrease. How many of us that has been the heart of our own Christian life? Whatever I do, I need it to be something that shows the Lord forth into the world. Let me decrease. Let me be the friend of the bridegroom. Let me be the one who presents Jesus to the world and then steps out of the frame. This really is the heart of the Christian faith in some ways. That we, the church, would be the people, as, as we witness to the fact that Jesus comes to save the world, that we are the part of the world that recognizes that we've been saved in Christ. Right? God draws us together for that fact so that we can continue to not only deepen our own salvation, but to extend that salvation out into the world to bring others in, right? To, to extend that invitation to people. And this is the joy <laughs> that he's talking about. And, and maybe it's strange because what we're talking about is me kind of decreasing. <laughs> is our lives sort of stepping out of the frame as Jesus steps into the frame? And yet the way Scripture talks about that and the way our witness talks about that that is what is joyful. And so what is joy? Well, we sang joy to the world today, right? <laughs> we all know joy to the world. We've sung it a hundred times. Anybody know where it comes from? Anybody know who wrote it? Well, Handel wrote the music, but technically the, the music was poached from Handel and, um, and sort of patched together. Isaac Watts, exactly, wrote the lyrics. Thank you. So Isaac Watts, kind of a contemporary of John and Charles Wesley in England, um, I think. Anyway, uh, and, and uh, a really famous hymn writer. But he didn't know, A, he didn't know he was writing a Christmas song, right? B, um, because despite what, you know, Charles Dickens and everybody will tell you, Christmas wasn't actually that big of a deal in the 1800s. Uh, they were still working on it. Uh, but he didn't know he was writing a Christmas song. B, what he was trying to do, he, t he wrote this book where he took the Psalms and he sort of translated them with Jesus as their fulfillment. And so Joy to the World is this sort of translation of Psalm 98 where Jesus the King becomes the one who we have expected. And this joy that shows forth is kind of a, a interesting kind of joy. 
Because when I think of joy, when, when I think we often think of joy, we think of sitting around and watching smiles on children. We, we think of kind of bright colored clothes and, and ribbons and lights. We think of good treats. We think of good stuff that makes us happy. <laughs> and yet Watts does not refer to that one bit. <laughs> what does he refer to instead? The end of the curse. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. That's Genesis 3 again. He refers to the king in his place. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love and wonders, wonders of his the king in his place puts everything where it ought to be. He talks about the union of man and creation. Let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing. This picture of joy is a picture of the undoing of sin that happens as God and man become one in Jesus. And that's what makes it ultimately a, a, uh, a Christmas song, <laughs> an Advent song, is because it's about this expectation of the King who is coming. But joy, despite how hard it is to actually get this, at least through my thick head, is not about happiness or things that make us feel good. Joy is about that moment and that time and that place when our souls and our spirits resonate with the very thing that we were created for. With the very one who created us. It is about this kind of moment where we see that we are connected and hooked into the one who not only made us but loves us. When I was in high school, when I was 16, probably before we spun the globe and decided we were going to Costa Rica, I went on a mission trip to Latvia in Eastern Europe. And um, I, was, I was with a, a band. It was a husband and wife group, and they would sing kind of, I don't know, folk rock Christian-y stuff. And so they brought me on, and I was playing bass with them, right? So I pack up my bass, and I'm excited because I'm going to go play a, a... I'm going on tour in Eastern Europe, right? Uh, <laughs> And what we were we were just kind of doing ministry with uh, with a church there and everything like that. So, so I'm playing bass in this church, and and I've got my little Fender P bass and I'm having a good time and and all of this sort of thing. And every time I hit a B, right, which is like when you play, there are certain notes that just sound really good on a bass, right? And at least on that bass, like. A B sounded really good. But when I played a B in this particular building, and it was kind of a biggish Baptist church, there was this thing that would buzz up in the ceiling somewhere. And, and it, it didn't actually matter if I played it soft or quiet. I'd kind of bring down the, the volume a little bit, but you'd hear <laughs> And it drove me crazy. Because my like, favorite note, and I have favorite notes, my, my favorite note is like not working, and it's kind of messing with the building, and something weird is going on. I didn't know what it was. And then 
Nate, the guy who, the husband and the husband and wife duo, and they were pretty well educated in music. They'd recorded all this stuff. He turns and he goes, oh yeah, that's just the resonant frequency. Like, what are you talking about? I have no idea what resonant frequency is. <laughs> and he proceeds to educate me on this thing in physics, which is that physical objects have a thing called resonant frequency, which if you catch the right wave, and, and you can go, like there are people who can like kind of pulse, uh, like push a, a telephone pole at like the right frequency. and, and Slowly but surely, you'll see this whole telephone pole kind of wobbling and, and moving. It's kind of freaky, actually. But this resonant frequency is actually kind of like built into the physical structure of the universe, that our, our bodies even have these things where our, they respond to whether it's the size or the shape or whatever it is, they respond to a particular frequency. So although I couldn't play B in that building, here we are 20 years later, it made a decent sermon illustration. <laughs> because here's the thing, here's the thing. We are built to resonate with certain things in this universe. Physical objects have a resonant frequency, but so do you. And the, and the one who creates that resonance in you is the Father. The one who creates that resonance with you is God. And, and just as a creation, whether you see it or not, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, we have a connection to God. And when that becomes clear or obvious to us, we resonate. Something in our soul sings, something in us moves and says, this is who I am meant to be. This is who I'm created to be. And I can't help it necessarily. And that, that what I want to suggest to you is that's what joy is. Joy is when our souls resonate with the music of the universe, which is God. Joy is when that kind of golden thread that connects us to our Creator all of a sudden lights up. And maybe it's a happy moment, but maybe it's a terrifying moment that we're actually in something so significant and so meaningful. Joy to the world is about a joy that says, here comes the one who causes all of this to vibrate with love and peace and hope. And as he takes his place, as he takes his place as the king, as he lifts up our own human nature, which for so long we didn't know what to do with, and all of a sudden here is God lifting up our nature and uniting it to himself and saying, this is what it looks like when all the brakes are taken off. This is what it looks like when there's, there's no more maybes or what ifs. This is God and man in one. This is God in the womb of Mary. And we see it just unveiled and real in the body and the flesh and the life of Jesus Christ. That's what John the Baptist says, yeah, I gotta get out of the way of that. <laughs> like, I'm compelling, I'm a good speaker, I can draw a crowd, but I'm not that. I'm not the creator, so he must increase, and I must decrease. When we talk about joy, we're not talking about passion in a cheap kind of way, like, you know, I just have a passion for playing cards, or I have a passion for you know, riding a bicycle or something. These are great things. And they're doorways to something real, but the real, the real real that's behind all of that is that God has elevated our very nature 
uniting himself to us in Jesus Christ. And that resonant frequency, that joy will call us to attention. Maybe you don't see it. Maybe you don't feel it. The other thing the scriptures tell us is that that joy will call us out of death. And it may be that the thing that you need to do this Advent is wake up. To wake up to the life that God has called you to. To let your soul be raised from the dead in some way. It's your breath in our lungs. Call out your praise. Maybe my question for you this week is how can you resonate with God in his truth and in his joy this week? What are the things that you can do to open your eyes, your heart, to the ways that he's speaking to you, to the heart that he has for you, to the life that he's calling you to? I want to suggest to you that the first thing to do is to recognize that he has called you into the same life and love as we see in, his, in Jesus Christ. The second thing we can do is start to say and to pray with John, Lord, would you increase so that I might decrease? Would you go up even if it means that I go down? Maybe we say, with Mary, Lord, I don't know what it is that you are bearing in me, what you're bringing into the world through me, but let it be with me according to your will. Maybe it's with Isaiah, this conviction that when we work in the knowledge and the truth of the kingdom, nothing is wasted. Nothing is Here's what I mean. When you decide to turn on your blinker instead of just slowly drifting into the next lane, I don't know how, but that's not wasted. <laughs> when you make a choice to drive with respect, when you make the call to put yourself on pause and let that person sneak in front of you in line, when you do the harder thing of but actually breathing through and confessing your anger rather than just letting it rip like normal. When you do the really brave and courageous thing of confessing your sadness in the midst of a sorrowful time, nothing is wasted. God takes even those small things and elevates them and lifts them up and makes them a part of his kingdom. When you actually get out of bed and pray and spend those 10 minutes in the Word, God lifts that up and elevates them, encourages and redeems it, no matter how small. And God will, over time, when we lean into Him, when we trust in Him, when we place our hope in Him, God will bring us into that life of joy. As all that we are, and all that we have, becomes rightly ordered in his kingdom. 
There is work that needs to be done in this room that only you can do. And so we entrust it to you. Would you take our hearts? Would you take this church? Renew and redeem and establish all that we offer here to you, Lord, in your kingdom. Where nothing is wasted. Where nothing is forgotten. But Lord, you see each small move towards you. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would enable us to resonate with the joy of your son Jesus in this world. Even in a world that tries to celebrate that tries to celebrate at this time of year, Lord God. May we be a people who show forth what it really means to live in your light. We ask it in your name.